Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. All right, so at this point, we're all fairly well agreed and it's understood that to sell is human right it's the name of the book and it's what we have been talking about for the last two parts of this small mini series based on the book to sell is human by dan pink and in part one we talked about the rebirth of a salesman and really what that means is to understand that sales probably isn't what most people think it is it isn't just about having a magic script that makes people part with their money Sales doesn't necessarily have to be about a transfer of currency. It can be about moving somebody from a particular point of view to a new point of view, or it can be about convincing somebody that they should do something that's mutually beneficial. So part one was all about the rebirth of the salesman to understand that all of us are in sales. We're all in the moving business as Dan Pink calls it in the book. We also talked then about having an entrepreneurial approach to these things that that kind of hustle nature i suppose which is something we talked about in part one and we talked about going from buyer beware to seller beware because of information parity there's no longer information asymmetry it's not like well the example he gives in the book is the used car salesman from the from the 70s or the 80s who had all the information about a particular car and it's not like that anymore we can have just as much if not more information about a particular car that we're going to buy and it's actually true no matter what it is you're going to buy we're all inundated with information and data at all times so there's information parity we all have access to the same information but then part two the most recent podcast that we did was about how to be how to actually think how to how to conduct yourself if you like when it comes to sales or persuasion or motivation the first thing was attunement and attunement was the the new word if 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 you like uh, for rapport is to be able to to mimic somebody or strategically mimic somebody and we talked about mixing that logic with the good feeling so we talked about how attunement is really about using empathy but it's, also, it's basically using your head and your heart at, at the same time is what he said we talked about buoyancy and if you remember we talked about the fuller brush salesman norman hall and how he just never lost faith right he, he would always make sure that he he'd mix up his meetings so that he might take a couple of easy ones to start his day then maybe a couple of difficult ones back to a couple of easy ones and so on so when you're trying to move somebody if you're trying to persuade somebody perhaps try what you're going to try in a low risk environment and the last thing then he talked about was clarity and it's actually the last part of the last podcast is actually where i'm going to start this podcast clarity was all about making sure that you you had a clear call to action a thing that you wanted somebody to do a next step generally if it's the first sales conversation that you're having with somebody or the first time you're trying to persuade somebody to do something generally it's going to take a couple of conversations to 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 help move them along to where you would like them to be and clarity was all about making sure that people knew what the next step was that's why software companies will offer you a free trial they'll try and get you signed up to the free trial straight away and if they're any good at what they're doing what they'll do is after the free trial starts they'll assign an individual person who's going to help you through the through the whole process and show you all the bells and whistles that this particular piece of software has same thing with buying a car they'll want you to take a test drive as soon as possible they want you to take the next easy step and he finishes off part two, which is like I said, we're going to start this particular podcast, even more <laughs> form it's in, but let's just say we're starting it here, with this idea of the five 
wise. So the five wise, and he talks about if anyone out there, and some of you may have heard on the last podcast, um, I do have a toddler. I have two toddlers and, a, and an older one as well. But anyone who does have toddlers will understand that why question. Well, why? Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to put on my shoes? Why, 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 why? But it's actually a great way of, of finding clarity on what the next step should be that you're going to ask somebody to do. Because if you ask yourself five whys about a particular situation, let's stick with just a, a pure sales example for the moment. Let's say you want to uh, sell a used car, which is you're selling your car. Why would somebody buy this car? Well, because it's a good car. It's got very low mileage. Why would they know that? Well, because I'm going to make sure that I tell them. And you go on like that. So you keep asking yourself why, why, why. And what that should do ultimately is to give you the underlying reasons as to why is to, to discover really what somebody's underlying motivations are. Same thing in a persuasion conversation. If you wanted somebody to, to move to a new point of view, if you wanted to convince somebody to work late on your team or whatever it is, you could just ask them why or ask yourself why five times from their point of view. Why would they be likely to work late? right? And go from there. And every answer then you ask, well, why is that the answer? And eventually you get to a point where you're, you're basically going in circles and you go, well, that's probably the base reason as to why they might want to do something. So anyway, part three of this book is about what to do. So part two is how to be, right? It was about attunement, buoyancy and clarity, the new ABC of sales. Whereas part three is about what to do. And the what to do is, there's three main sections we're going to talk about here. One is the pitch, right? As in how to get your point across really quickly they they talk at the beginning of this section of the book about the elevator pitch the idea of the elevator pitch is that a guy working in a company is finds himself in the elevator or the lift as we call it in in his organization he's in the organ he's in the lift with the ceo of the company and he has from when the doors close until when the ceo gets out of the the lift or the elevator to get his point across about why he should be promoted or an idea he has to improve efficiency or to sell something to him, right? That's called the elevator pitch. And the idea is you want to get your point across in like a minute, 30 seconds, that kind of thing. But in the book, he talks about different types of pitches and he talks about the Pixar pitch. He talks about the one word pitch, the Twitter pitch, the subject line uh, pitch. I'm going to go, I won't go into all of them. I'm going to go into one of them in particular, the, the Pixar pitch. It's, it's um, You can read the book for the rest of them. But it is uh, a great way to understand how you should think about approaching somebody either from a sales point of view or from a uh, persuasion point of view or whatever whatever way you're going to move somebody how you pitch it is important the second thing that he talks about is improvisation being able to improvise in the moment now i've anyone who's taken any any of my courses before i've, I've done lots of courses in sales before i've told this story before i'll tell it now real quick uh, many years ago, I was uh, married, but and I'm still married, <laughs> uh, married but childless, right? We didn't have children at the time. And there was one particular evening that there was a, a my wife is in work or something. I had the house myself, anyway, I can't remember exactly where she was. But the doorbell rang. I was in the middle of making dinner. I ran out to the uh, front door to open the door. Um, I'd just taken, like, the pan off the heat. And, you know, I was right at that uh, critical point of making a, a, a dinner doorbell rings I run out and somebody's standing there and it's one of these cold callers who is trying to get you to switch energy providers or broadband providers or something right and it's quarter past seven in the evening and I just don't care right 
I'm not bothered. I don't really, I just want to get rid of them as soon as possible. And this young girl, God bless her, she stood there and she was immediately frazzled. I hadn't said a word to her. I'd said, actually what had happened is I'd said, how's it going? And she kind of got despondent straight away and said, oh, I was supposed to say that first. And I knew straight away that she had memorized a script and she was not going to be able to deviate from this script. And by me saying hello first, that was enough to throw her off. She had no idea where she was in the script. As far as she's concerned, this is a scene from a play that ends in me uh, switching providers for whatever it was that she was uh, looking for me to switch. So she's, you know, all a tizzy and she pulls out her laminated sheet with all the benefits and, and features. She hasn't told me who she is, who she works for, or what anything is. And she just starts pointing to random parts on this laminated A4 sheet about all the benefits and the features. And I said, listen, I'm not, I, I'm not interested. I'm not, this isn't really for me. And then she put her foot inside the house. And, and I was like, hey, that's a bit, what are you doing? Like, that's like real kind of, a, not aggressive, but just kind of like ur- with an urgency, like she kind of put her foot into the house. And um, I said, listen, I'm not interested. And it was only afterwards when I closed the door, I realized she'd obviously had some sales training and somebody at some point had told her, uh, try and get your foot in the door, right? That's the, the idea of this pitch is to get your foot in the door, metaphorically, not literally, but she took it literally. And it's it's a key thing in sales and in, in, in persuasion and getting people to move to a new point of view. All of those things is improvisation, is to make sure that you're able to, to roll with the punches, as it were. Back in the day when somebody um, didn't have information parity, there would have been a sales script that probably would have worked where somebody would be able to to handle your objections and, and that kind of thing. But most of the time these days, people don't like that kind of sales. Like I said at the very beginning of this little mini mini series of podcasts, people love buying things, but they hate being sold to. And it's so true because you want you want to be guided to a sale. You don't want to be confused into it. So anyway, improvisation is something that he talks about in this book, but he talks about it in from the point of view of uh, comedians. If you've ever been to an um, improv show, uh, he talks about how you should always use yes and, which I'll talk about when we get to that section as well. And the last part then, the bit we'll finish this uh, this book on, is to serve. Is that no matter what you're doing, is whether it's in sales, whether it's in persuasion, whether it's in just getting somebody to move to a new point of view, you should be doing it from a place of service, which is sounds a bit wishy-washy, but it is 100% true. You should always play the long game. You should always be trying to move somebody to a to a new point of view to get something to to get them to do something that's mutually beneficial. These things, when you learn these kinds of sales techniques and persuasion techniques, they can be used to manipulate people, but they should never be because when you manipulate people, they'll eventually cop on. They'll cop on sooner rather than later, and you don't want that. You, you don't. You want to play the long game, whether it's a work colleague, whether it's a um, a business deal, whether it's in a negotiation, whether it's with your kids. Your kids will know when you're trying to manipulate them as well. And you have to make sure that you're not that you're you're doing it from a place of service. That you're doing it. That's a, you genuinely believe in what you're doing, right? That's the 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 point that he talks about. Anyway, back to the first part. Then is the is the pitch is to make sure that uh, you have your pitch down. So. At the very beginning of, the, of this podcast, uh, you probably heard me say, get deeper learning from the greatest minds to have ever put pen to paper. That took me 
ages to come up with that. It took me, I, I cycled through, I don't know how many different versions of that before I settled on something that made sense to me. Hopefully it makes sense to you too, but it makes sense to me. It makes sense because that's, that's what we're trying to achieve here at Use Because, is to give you deeper learning from the best minds to have ever put pen to paper. That's the idea behind what we do. So in this book, he talks about the, the sales pitch being different, or he talks not the sales pitch, he talks about the elevator pitch being different than uh, than it used to be, or there's different versions of it. And one of the things, I'll just talk real quickly um, about, about what he says about um, pitching in general. He gives exam examples from Hollywood, actually, and talks about how people are pitching movies and uh, scripts the whole time. But one of the things he says, that the, uh, it's it's true of a lot of the things in business, really, um, and really what we've talked about in this course, this podcast, is that the pitch isn't necessarily to move others immediately to adopt your idea. It's to open a conversation. That's the idea of a pitch. So imagine if I met a uh, an investor uh, who, who could be interested in use because or might not be. Imagine if they said, so what do you do? And I just went into the technical details behind the back end of our system and uh, how we use databases and how we send and pull information from the data. Like, nobody cares about that, not at the beginning. But if I say something like, well, we give our users uh, deeper learning from the best business minds that have ever put pen to paper. That's my pitch, right? That's my 10 second pitch, not even 10 seconds, but three second pitch. And from there then, all that does is open a conversation. So if you're in sales or if you're in, uh, if you need to motivate somebody or you need to persuade somebody, think about your own pitch. Can you do it in a quick short burst that intrigues the other person, that make them say, tell me more about that. So in this particular section, he talks about the six successors to the elevator pitch. His idea being that, you know, people are working remotely all the time and you don't necessarily are going to see the, see, actually one of the things I'm just thinking now what he says in the book is that the, the elevator pitch used to be for people to talk to the CEO, right? Because the CEO used to be in the big corner office where nobody could actually get near them. Whereas these days in most companies, uh, your boss sits with you, right? There's no, you know, open plan offices and, you know, no partitions and that kind of thing. Or there's a really solid open door policy where people can come and go as generally as they please. So getting access to the CEO or to your line manager, it's, it's not that difficult. So the elevator pitch, trying to get your point across in in the time it takes to get up in the in the elevator, it's not really that relevant anymore um, for, for a lot of people. So, um, one of, yeah, so one of the things he talks about um, is the, the one word pitch, the question pitch, the rhyming pitch, which is uh, an interesting one. Um, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. Remember what that one is from? It's not mentioned in the book now, but I just thought of that one there. If the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. That wasn't done. That was in the O.J. Simpson uh, case, and they reckon that was one of the key key parts of, of why O.J. Simpson um, was found innocent or not guilty. <laughs> I don't know. There's a slight difference there, but he was found not guilty. Uh, and it was his lawyer, whose name I can't remember now, but it was his lawyer who said that if the if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. I hope I have the quote quote right. But that was like that was like a rhyming pitch. That was something for the for the jurors to go away with, to to think about. And like I said, that's not that wasn't he didn't just think of that on the spot. He he understood the psychology behind giving somebody something that they just constantly say over and over again in their head. But there's two I was going to talk about. One was the subject line pitch, and the other was the uh, the the Pixar pitch. So the subject line pitch is something that's I, I think is always very interesting. It's basically 
what will go on the subject line of an email to make somebody open that email. Now, most of the time, there's there's two two main kind of themes or kind of uh, trains of thought, I suppose, on what will make somebody open an email. One, it tells them directly what's in this email. You know, um, new report on insert your industry um, salary trends or something like that. You'll you'll click on it if it's of, of value to you or of interest to you. And the second thing is if it's intriguing, if it's something that's a little bit quirky, a little bit different, not really sure what I'm going to expect. But the ones that don't work on anyone who has any sort of savvy in them at all, is the ones that don't work are the ones that hurry, click here now, um, time is running out. You know, They can work at certain points of a sales process or a persuasion process, but not at the beginning. Right, that's you just screams spam right when you, when you read those kinds of email lines so he talks a little bit about the subject line pitch and how to how to structure one in one of those two ways in a way that's either tells people directly what they're going to get from opening this email they're going to be rewarded for opening this email or secondly uh, that it's something that's slightly quirky or slightly intriguing or is leading in in how you and in in opening so by op- by click on it you, m- you might be rewarded uh, in some way I read a great thing there a while ago, um, actually it was a long, long time ago, about sales, about cold calling people. And, you know, being the, the founder of a, of a startup like, like you, because I get those kinds of emails all the time where people, they immediately go into the sales pitch in the email where it's, it's hyperlinks here, there and everywhere. Things are in bold. There's paragraphs with bullet points in it. And I just don't read any of it because I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're sending me this stuff. And it's just pure straight up sales they're just trying to get me to part of my money they're not asking me anything about who i am what i'm interested in or and um, what might be a value for me but one one amazing thing i saw before I, th- I think i read this i don't think i've ever i've ever used it i've never actually seen it in the field i've never seen it live but one thing i i've read before is about when you're cold calling somebody is to as in cold emailing, I should say, not cold calling, but but sending a cold email as in you've got no introduction, you've got no relationship with the, with the individual that you are getting in contact with. It's just ask them a straight up question. No, hi, hope you're well. No, everybody writes that. I think I write it as well. I hope you're well. Uh, I do hope you're well, but it's just, it's, it's a bit uh, overdone at this point. So this guy had said that he would send an email with it would have his signature, so just, you know, founder of Use Because, whatever his company would be, and maybe a contact uh, phone number. He'd have the email from receiving the email. But the question might be like, uh, who does your stationery? Like, whatever it is that he's trying to sell or, or he wants to have a conversation about, a one, one, one line, one sentence, no hi, no goodbye, no uh, features and benefits of, of, the, of the product or service. Who does your stationery? Where do you buy your fleet of vans? how's Salesforce going for you, right? Whatever the product is, asking a one-word question. If somebody's interested, they'll get back in touch. They'll also appreciate you not wasting their time or not, like I said, people love buying stuff. They hate being sold to. And that's just a straight-up question. This, I might have something to value to you. I might not. Just Let's just cut to the chase here. It's a, it's a bold way of doing things. I like it. I've, I've never tried it. Um but it's something I will if you see an email from me someday saying that that's uh, you, you know that it's um it's it's a it's a it's I actually think it's one of the best ways to to open a conversation with somebody 
like everyone in business is their days are jam-packed with things to be doing i haven't got time to listen to your sales pitch just because you spend ages on it if i'm gonna if i'm gonna if you're gonna try and sell me something you have to find out if i have a problem first of all that you have the solution to that's the first thing who does your stationery where do you buy your your fleet of cars your your company cars whatever the whatever it is get straight to the point it's a, it's an interesting way to do it anyway that's the subject line um obviously if you even if you do have a, a one a one line email like that you still need a decent subject line to make somebody open it um it could just be the name of your product something very simple so the pixar pitch it's based on uh, so one of the things he says in, in the book is that pixar has been on the go since or they, they started having success in 1995 with the first toy story film and at the time of writing, they had grossed $7.6 billion around the world with Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Wall-E, Wall Up, Toy Story 3. We're now on to Toy Story 4, of course. And uh, 26 uh, Oscars that the studio has taken home. And there's a there's obviously some sort of formula to the to how they go about picking the, the movies that they're going to make and how they put them together, a structure, if you like. And this is what they're talking about in this book is the Pixar pitch. So there's a woman who used to be a story artist at the studio. Her name is uh, Emma Coates, and she basically cracked the code. Like, and, and it's it's funny because you can you can you can look at any of the Pixar movies or films, and you you can make this you can make this code fit, which is fascinating. So I'll, I'll read out what she says here. I have it in the book here. I'll read out what she says. Uh, let me see. Uh, Coates has argued that every Pixar film shares the same narrative DNA, a deep structure of storytelling that involves six sequential sentences. So these are the six sentences that make up the Pixar pitch or the, the structure of a Pixar film. Once upon a time, blank, every day, blank, one day, blank, because of that, blank, because of that, blank, until finally, blank so what they do then in the book and this is fascinating is that they give the the plot for finding nemo once upon a time there was a widowed fish named marlin who was extremely protective of his only son nemo every day marlin warned nemo of the ocean's dangers and implored him not to swim far away one day in an act of defiance nemo ignored his father's warnings and swam into the open water because of that he's captured by the by a diver and ends up as a pet fish uh, in a dentist in Sydney and because of that Marlin sets off on a journey to recover Nemo until finally Marlin and Nemo find each other reunite and learn that love depends on trust Aww. and that six sentence format it's appealing and it's supple it's to the point right it's there's there's no fat in that at all there's no uh, it gets to the point and even when i'm reading that out you can kind of see the scenes in your head you can see them in the fish tank in the in the dentists in uh, sydney and all the people who came along or the people <laughs> the other creatures that came along and helped them uh, until finally they're they're united it's it's an interesting way how uh how, how pixar have basically found a formula found a code and all of their movies basically fit into that structure. And in the book then, um, he gives an example for business then, right? A non-profit organization that's created a home HIV test and uh, they're looking for funders. So their Pixar pitch might go something like this. And I'll read this at this little chapter, out, this little section of the book as well. Once upon a time, there was a health crisis haunting many parts of Africa. Every day, thousands of people would die of AIDS and HIV-related illness, often because they didn't know they carried the virus. 
One day, we developed an inexpensive home HIV kit that allowed people to test themselves with a simple saliva swab. Because of that, more people got tested. And because of that, those with infections sought treatment and took measures to avoid infecting others. Until finally, this menacing disease slowed its spread and more people lived longer lives. The end. Right? Everybody lives in the end. Stories are such a hugely, hugely powerful part of what we do as human beings. It's, it, it comes back to like the caveman thing of uh, survive and replicate. That's, that's what humans, uh, that's, that's our base function, right, is to survive and to replicate your genes. One of the best ways to get a point across would have been through stories, is through ex using what's called mirror neurons, basically, to put yourself into a situation that somebody is telling you about. It's like when a Joe Rogan, actually, the, the podcaster and, and comedian and UFC accommodator, he talks a lot about when he's delivering comedy or when he's in a comedy club listening to comedy, that when you're... It's like, it's like mass hypnosis, I think, is what he calls it, is that you're allowing the comedian to do the thinking for you which is a really interesting way of putting it because it's true because when you're at, when you're at a comedy show and the comedian is like acting out a story or telling you some ridiculous thing that happened you're seeing yourself in that person in that situation you're using like mirror neurons which we talk about and we'll talk about in another podcast but it's basically you kind of putting yourself in that in the place of the comedian and you're just allowing the comedian to do the thinking for you and when you do that, when you put yourself, you use empathy and mirror neurons to put yourself in that situation, what you're really doing is uh, experiencing it without the danger. Right? Now, obviously, hopefully there's not too much danger at a comedy show, but back with the survive and replicate thing, especially the survive part, if one of your caveman buddies was to tell you a story, um, either through language or through grunts or whatever, that would have, that would have, enabled you to be safe the next time you go near that canyon the next time you go near that cliff or that particular snake with a particular red dot on its head or whatever it is that stories were, were a huge part of, of helping us uh, survive right and it's why they're so they resonate so much with us now it's why it's why fiction is so um popular it's why uh, books, films, uh, any type of story, comedy, anything that tells a story, anyone who's a good storyteller can get the attention of an entire room. And that's ultimately what they're talking about there with the Pixar, pit, Pixar pitch, is that if you can put your idea, your uh, thought, whatever it is, down into a story, and, and a, not just any rambling crazy story, but a story that, that has a beginning, a middle and an end that follows that, that Pixar uh, pitch structure, you have a much better chance of either moving somebody to where you want them to move to or to be able to at least get to the next point of the conversation. So the next thing he talks about in chapter 8 of the book is improvise uh, or improv. Uh, to, to be able to roll with the punches, to be able to take what somebody says, no matter what they say, and build on it. And he talks specifically now, he goes into lots of different examples, um, and it's from, I'll, I'll read out one of the examples, but he goes into lots of different ideas about, about what improv is and how it can help. Think about the difference between the words and and but. Now, this, is a, this isn't from the book. I don't think this is the, the level of example he's given from the book. But this is one of my examples. Uh, I remember just thinking about this a long time ago. I was explaining the difference between the words and and but to somebody um, in a sales point of view. And this is the example I came up with on the spot. And it's something that always just stuck with me. 
I don't know if you are aware of the uh, sweet or the candy. I know there's some, some Americans listen to this as well. People all over the world listen. Sweets, candy, right? They're called fruit pastels. I think they are fairly uh, ubiquitous. I think they are fairly uh, well known around the world. Uh, but fruit pastels, they're like squashy kind of, uh, I don't know what you call them, sugar. <laughs> squashy sugar, all different flavours. Now, the example I gave to somebody before was that I like red pastels, but I really like green pastels. So I use the word but there, right? And I say it again then, but say it this way and said, I like red pastels and I really like green pastels, right? So I'll say it one more time. I like red pastels, but I really like green pastels. When I say the word but there, what that really tells you as a listener is that I I prefer the green ones. I like red pastels, but I really like green ones. I like red pastels, but I really like green ones. It's almost like you, you disregard the first part of the sentence because it's not as important as the second part. But when I say it the other way around, I like red pastels and I really like green pastels. Both the red and the green in that case are equal. Right? It's a ridiculous example, but I think it makes the point as to, to the difference between uh, the words and and but. And it's hugely important when it comes to sales and motivation and persuasion and really uh, taking building a conversation. So what he talks about when it comes to improv is if you've ever been to like just I don't think I need to explain what an improv uh, comedy gig is, but I'll explain it just very quickly. Uh, basically what happens is there's two or three comedians on the stage you're going to act out a scene and the scene is going to be based on uh, recommendations or suggestions from the audience right so people they'll say okay give us a give us a situation where we might be standing and somebody might say a car park okay give us um he has a problem what's his problem oh, he's got a broken leg right that kind of thing and then they start the scene so what has to happen in order for this to work and for an order for it to be funny is that they have to build on what each other says so they never actually come out and say that that's what they're going to do. But let's imagine the scene starts, they're in a car park, and the first person says, well, here we are in this car park, and it is hammering down rain. The next person along, right, in this imaginary conversation, or this conversation they're making up as they go along, they have to agree that it's raining. So that's like the yes and. Yeah, it is. And it's lucky I have this umbrella. Uh, even though, you know, and whatever, right? So they go from there. Now, if you imagine that they use the word but instead, or they implied the word but instead, here we are in this car park and it's hammering down rain and the other person says, but it's not raining or but whatever, right? So it's like, they that's the end of the scene. That doesn't work then. They're trying to build something together. They have to keep saying yes and they have to kind of keep putting th putting things together. And that's a key thing when it comes to using persuasion or to, it comes to uh, to not falling into an argument with somebody. And he gives a, a great example in the book here. Um, let me just find it here. Uh, it involves two people who are planning a hypothetical gathering, say a high school reunion. So I'll, I'll, I'll read it out. So one person begins with a proposition, for example, let's have our high school reunion in Las Vegas. Every subsequent subsequent comment from both participants must begin with yes, but. And it's gonna unfold, unfold something like this. Let's have our high school reunion in Las Vegas. Yes, but that's gonna to be too expensive for some people. Yes, but that's the only way uh, the people who really want to go uh, will actually attend. Yeah, but some of them are our classmates and they don't gamble. Yeah, but there's more to do there than just play 
play blackjack. Yes, but even without gambling, it's still not a great place for people to bring their families. Yeah, but reunions are better with all those kids. Yeah, but if we can't find childcare at home, then people won't go. And on and on it goes and just spins out of control. And then he gets the... So this is uh, an example from uh, an improv class that the author actually took. And the person running the improv class gets them to do it again. Only this time everyone answers uh, with and instead of but. So it goes something like this. Let's have our high school reunion in Las Vegas. Yes, and if it's too expensive some for some people, we can raise money or organize road trips. Yeah, and if we start early, we could reserve a block of rooms at a hotel that offer volume discounts. Yes, and for families with kids and for people who don't gamble, we could organize activities during the day. Yes, and if we have enough people, we might be able to pool our resources to pay for babysitters. So one night, maybe all the parents can go out on their own. And so it goes. Right, so when you change the word but and and, it makes a huge difference. And that's kind of a key thing when it comes to uh, to sales, to persuasion, and all of the things I've mentioned several times now. Another thing he mentions in this particular section is to actually hear offers. So even when somebody gives you an objection, is to is to hear the offer within that objection. Say you're you're raising money for a particular charity, you're going to run a marathon for um, you know uh, somebody, so your favorite charity, and you say to one of your friends. Uh, could you could you donate 200 euro or 200 dollars 200 pounds whatever it is and your friend says i can't give you 200 dollars right now there's an offer in there so i can't give you 200 dollars right now or you can't give me 200 dollars uh ever right is it the is it the amount or is it the timing so there's an offer in there that, that the that the the listener has to hear which is um, a key point and he goes on a bit about that in in the book um hearing offers so when somebody gives you an objection, they, they generally don't say no straight up. There'll usually be something in what they say that'll, that'll give you a little thread, something to pull on. The third thing he talks about in improv is to make your partner look good, which is a, a key thing, right? In any sales conversation, persuasion, make the other person look good. That's one of the best ways you're going to move somebody to your preferred point of view. Make your partner look good. Chapter 9, he talks about being of service to people. And I'm going to finish this section off and, and, and essentially the, the podcast off with this story that he tells about a former mid-level AT&T executive named Robert Greenleaf. And he wrote an essay that essentially launched a movement. He called it Servant as a Leader. And what he did with this idea of being uh, of of leadership going from say command and control to a leader being basically a servant to their team, it basically upended all the philosophies and turned out to to, to be the the way management or the way leadership is these days. Is that because again of information parity, because of the leaders not needing to be the gatekeepers of the information, everyone has access to all the same information the leader needs to be a servant it's almost like there's an analogy of a team you know making their way through through a jungle and they're hacking down all the uh, all the the brush and, and stuff in front of them to, to get through the jungle and everyone has their own job to do and really what the the leader's job is not to be out 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 the front leading it should be at the back sharpening the tools and making sure everybody has what they need to do their job. And that's ultimately what this guy said in 1970, this guy Robert Greenleaf, is to subordinate themselves to their followers. That's what a leader should be. And his philosophy included things like do no harm or to respond to any problem by listening first. 
and to accept and to empathize rather than just reject so a leader should like and it's it's a thing that all the all the best managers or i shouldn't say managers managers are different than leaders but the best people who have led your teams the best ones have always had strong emotional intelligence they've always been good listeners uh, they've always known when to put an arm around you and when to give you a kick up the backside they all know the difference between the two and when they should do one over the other and this is how Daniel H. Pink, the author of To Sell as Human, essentially wraps up this book. He talks about servant leadership is a great way of of approaching sales, and he calls it servant selling. It begins with the idea that those who move others aren't manipulators, but servants. They serve first and sell later. And the test, that's just like Robert Greenleaf's, is the best and most difficult to administer, and it's this. If the person you're selling to agrees to buy, Will his or her life improve? And when your interaction is over, will the world be a better place than when you began? And if the answer is yes, then that's servant selling, and now you're a salesperson.